Have you ever experienced something so crippling in your life that has made you feel broken? I have. Are you someone who has a giving heart but is struggling to feel good themselves? Are you consistently putting your needs aside to take care of everyone else? If so, you're not alone. Giving starts with giving to yourself so that you are able to give of yourself to other people. Isn't it time you took back control and discovered what makes you tick? Join me in my journey and find out how you can feel better about yourself, live your best life, and share that with others. Thinking of yourself, it doesn't make you selfish. It makes you brave. I'm Nelia, and this is the Giving Starts With You podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Giving Starts With You podcast. I am so honored to have you join us again from wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Um, You know, I had a time where I would, uh, when I didn't want anybody to know that I was suffering and I didn't want anybody to know what I was going through, I would just pop in my earbuds and nobody could hear that I was talking, you know, what, what I was listening to. And quite often podcasts saved my life. Um, and the stories that I hear. So, you know, um, yeah, I, I just love them. I love being a podcaster. Sorry about that, but I'm just new at this. And I love it because I meet the most incredible people. I just met Dr. Carol Scott. How are you, Carol? I am doing great today, Nelia. Thank you. Great. And, you know, sometimes you meet people and it doesn't have to be in person, just right through the screen, you can tell how genuine they are and and how wonderful they are. So I'm so glad to have met you today. Thank you. Thank you. So I just wanted to let you know, um, yeah, so Dr. L. Carol Scott, wow. Um, Where are you joining from today? I'm in Redwood City, California. I just uh, came down from Portland, Oregon a few days ago. Oh, so nice. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of an introduction for her. Um, Women on the Rise seek out Dr. L. Carol Scott and her seven self-aware success strategies to help them remove invisible barriers, ignite self-confidence, and implement immediate action for their personal and professional evolution. Love this. As a trauma-informed developmental psychologist, she shares how the first 2,500 days of our lives determine our skills for relationships, all of our relationships, for the rest of our lives. She achieves her life's mission to improve the way we treat each other by teaching us what we have always wanted to know about what makes people tick. Oh my goodness, I'm all about, let's figure out what makes you tick, because life is nothing without passion and Anyway, she is a TEDx speaker and an author. Dr. Scott is also a nationally respected thought leader in early care and education. As a keynote, sorry, a keynoter, trainer, and coach, she supports teams and individuals anywhere that relationships are at the heart of success. Her first book, Just Be Your S-E-L-F, Your Guide to Improving Any Relationship, provides the framework and the tools for development do-overs on your earliest years of life for better relationships now at home and at work. She holds an MA degree in early childhood education and a PhD in developmental and child psychology, both from the University of Kansas. And I just listened to her TEDx talk before we met today and it was worth watching. It was fabulous. Congratulations on everything. 
Thank you so much. No worries. Um, I understand today you're going to be talking about the early years of our development of social emotional capacities that enable um, that that life that we're all looking for, you know, so welcome. I'm so excited to have you today. I am so happy to be here. And it's just delightful to meet you. I just exactly what you said, I would say about you too. the minute you meet someone, you can feel the authenticity even through the screen in the camera. So thank you. This so is going to be a great conversation. I can tell. <laughs> Thank you so much. And I just feel like when you have those relationships with people, you don't need to be on the other side. You know, it doesn't matter if you're on the other side of the world. We're all human, right? right? We all can let our guards down and just be who we are. And I think it's beautiful. So how did this all begin? Where did you discover all of these, you know, first seven years? And this is, I'm very interested. Well, you know, I first became aware of the importance of the first seven years of life when I was a master's student. And even before that, I had a an undergraduate degree in human development. So, and it's long been recognized that these, the 2,500 days, that's seven years, more or less. So the first seven years of your life lay the foundation for everything. And we've known that for a long time. And yet we don't really act on it as a culture, as a, as a species. We're not really doing that well with the kids from birth to seven, especially in here in the United States where I am. So, um, and then after some new medical technology came in. So my PhD was done, dusted, I was working, and uh, some new medical technology called PET scanning came on board in the 1990s. Mm. And they started being able to look at living brains for the first time. All the information we had about brains was from uh, autopsy results. So being able to look at how a brain actually works while it's alive and doing its thing was not something we were able to do until the 1990s. And then we learned that what is actually happening from birth to five in that first early seven years is that the brain is being built, constructed one connection at a time, oh. uh, millions of connections at a time, actually, they happen very rapidly, um, over those first five years with most of it happening in the first three. That was a game changer for all of us in early childhood education. Because now instead of just social science, the soft science evidence and theory and research, we had hard medical neuroscience evidence that probably 95% of who we are is created in us from our experiences after we're born. And it had been a huge, you know, the whole nature nurture controversy, that pretty much ended it. Hmm. It's all about the nurture. We come into life with a basic temperament and a few sensory organs hooked up and that's it. And after that, everything we are is created by the people we interact with in the world that we have around us. And it wires our brains a million neural connections a second mm. for five years. Wow. Our, yeah, our, that's how it all started. Wow. Yeah, like our perceptions are all about our experiences, right? I mean, yeah. even in, in the home, you can have like siblings, but they all have different experiences, but they're living in the same home. See, I always but thought it was five years, but it's interesting to hear this. So the way I look at it is your, your core uh, brain wiring, your ability to operate as a machine, if you will, it happens from birth to five. 95% of your brain gets wired from birth to five. Then you practice for two years. By then you've developed all your skills for getting along in the world. And then for two years, you develop them into a personality. You take the temperament you were born with and you add all of that learning that you've done and all the assets that you've created and all of the 
the maladaptive strategies that you've developed, perhaps. So maybe you didn't learn to ask for what you want. Maybe you learned to manipulate mm -hmm. to get what you want. <laughs> maybe you learned to cry to get what you want, right? So whatever strategies you come out of those for five years with, then you just practice them and you turn them into your routine. So this and then you a have a personality sense. by the time you're seven. This makes a lot of sense because my son was always a top negotiator. I mean, from the minute he could speak, I was like, where are you getting all this from? And he's still like that. He's 14. It's natural. Like it's natural. Wow. And so what, I, what I've observed then is that children have developmental windows for lots of things, learning to talk, learning math, learning foreign languages. Well, they have developmental windows for social and emotional development as well. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is in those first three years and all of it is in the first seven, pretty much. So who you are as a social being, how you have learned, I think of it this way. You've learned who you are, what your value is in the world, who other people are and what their value is in the world and how to get along, how to get what you want, how to move through life, interacting with these other people. And all of that you've got figured out by the time you're seven and everybody figures it out uniquely because we create understanding from whatever comes in and we create a unique understanding. That's so cool. Like, you know, sometimes we look at kids and before they can even speak and, and we don't really know all the stuff that's going on behind it, you know, and we only sort of get to know them and their personality when they are expressing themselves but there's so much going on be behind the scenes. So don't be so um, naive about it, right? So that's why we're educating ourselves because I think if more people were aware, they would be more aware of, nope, they're picking it up. They're you know, absorbing everything. Everything. And so if you get to be an adult, so this is how I bring this into the realm of let's all learn how to get along better in the adult sandbox. Yes. <laughs> if you bring this, if you bring all of that into your adult life, and then here's how you are. You don't know how to trust other people because you didn't get that when you were an infant. That was when you were slaying the foundation for trusting people. You didn't get what you needed then. And so now you don't know how to trust people. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, except that means at work, you can't delegate any of your authority if you're a manager and you're doing all the work and your team's not doing anything and you're not as productive as you could be. In your home life, it means that you're constantly questioning whether the people that say they love you really do mm. um, and, and wondering why perhaps. Um, then if as a toddler, you didn't really get that sense of, of personhood that toddlers have. Toddlers are all about telling us who they are. You know, you've had a kid. Brutally honest. <laughs> Brutally honest about who they are. And they know they know what they want, they know what they think, and they know how they feel. And they're trying to tell us that and they're bad at it. They're just like they were bad at walking when they first started doing it at nine months or 12 months. They're bad at expressing their thoughts and feelings and their, um, their sense of who they are. And so we mess with it. We tell them all the time, you shouldn't feel like that. That's not a good feeling to have. Don't think that. Don't say you hate someone. Don't do that. Don't. So they get the message over and over again, toddlers, that how they are how they think, what they feel, you know, what they want. All of it's too much. It's wrong. It's not the right stuff. They want more than they should want. They want the wrong things. They feel too much. And it's all just because it's messy. It's new. It's and what not. we really, uh, as adults, should be doing is helping them get better at expressing it. And instead, we kind of shape it into what we want to hear. I love that you said that, but it does. It makes me sad because... You know, for a long time, sometimes, well, for me, for a long time, I didn't feel like I really belonged anywhere. And I know I had a good upbringing, but my parents were busy. 
Yes. There were new immigrants to Canada. They had two, three jobs each. And I knew that I was taken care of, but perhaps it was more like what you're explaining, you know, trying to, I don't know. And as an adult, I think, do you think that that's why, because you're the expert, do you think that that's why, even though we know ourselves, we always change who we are because of what other people think we are, because we're used to that. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, the desire to put the face to the world that fits the world that's in front yes. of you to be the person that those people want you to be and then be the person that those people want you to be. That's very much about this, not, not getting a solid sense of self with boundaries. I feel like this over here and you feel like that over there and that's okay. You can feel different from me. I can feel different from you. There's nothing wrong with that. I get to have the feelings I have. Yeah. And we, and so before kids can even talk to us very well about this stuff, we're already telling them not to think the thoughts they have, not to want the things they want and not to have the feelings they have. And so, but you get to three and you're like, okay, now I sort of know who I am, but I'm pretty sure it's been tweaked. (laughs) And at three, you, you stop worrying about how everything works and you start looking around at the rest of the world. It's like, sometimes I think that threes literally like pick their heads up on one day and go, oh, wow, all this has been here all along too, right? Because there's so much about just the mechanics of the body and making, how, learning how to talk, and walk and all the basics. Oh, and now they're like, moves if I, yeah. Yeah. and they've come to this place in their brain development where they're much more aware of the world and it's all absolutely mystical and magical. They cannot understand a single thing that is happening because they have no logic. They don't get any logic until they're about six. Mm. And so everything that happens is just like, wow, wow, how is this happening? And that's the age at which children really build that passion for life and that enthusiasm and joy. They have big, exciting dreams and things. This is when children will tell you that they want to grow up to be something that you know they cannot be. (laughs) <laughs> that they probably will yes. like a, a dragon slayer or a fairy princess, you know, something like really fantastical, but they really believe that they can. And if we don't squash those dreams and we don't step on that imagination, that's the treasure. That's the success strategy that I call faith. That is the belief in things you cannot prove no matter what you call them. So it's not necessarily spiritual or religious. It's just hmm. faith in anything, faith in things unseen. I love this so much. I once talked to a child and asked what they wanted for Christmas and they said a magic wand so they could make their brother disappear. You bet. You know, but they were so disappointed because I could not get a magic wand that would not produce it. But is yeah. so is this why I'm intrigued? So is this why um, you know, when children cry, most of the time, you know, don't cry, it'll be okay, you know, toughen up, right? And to what to an extent, I think yes, we should try to make them a bit stronger, but not to the point that we are. I think they need to feel what they feel, right? Because then they learn suppression right from the beginning, and this is a problem. Yeah. I think a much healthier response from adults, which is often difficult for us to give because we didn't grow up learning how to express our feelings. So if we haven't done the work, unpacked our baggage about that, it's hard to help someone else do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know what we would help them if we could say is something more along the lines of, I see that you're upset. I see that you're angry. I see that you're grieving. I see that you're sad and have that feeling as much as you think you need to. And then we'll talk, have it as much as you think you can bear that you need to get it out. And then we'll take it from there and we'll, we'll talk about what to do next, but they have to have an opportunity to actually feel it because you're right. Suppression starts right then. 
And yeah. suppression leads to depression eventually if you don't stop it. Yeah, I know this for personally <laughs> and, and it's so true. But yeah, so I totally agree with like, I'm just shocked right now because I haven't heard anybody, I knew this, but I haven't heard anybody explain it that way. So it makes so much sense to me to connect. And even what you talked about with being an adult and being able to work in the workplace and all the things, you know, and you wonder, where is this coming from? Why is this person more adapt to, you know, delegating and trusting and, and all these things. And I think it's so great that we're having these conversations because the more we know, you know, education, more self-aware we are, right? Yeah. So, so let them cry for a bit. Um, but also kind of, you know, you can, as an adult, it's also, I think, I think up to us to, you know, when you feel that they've had enough, because sometimes children don't know when to turn it off either. And I think that that's unhealthy too, if we let them go on too long as well. So I think and children, and children have different abilities to self-regulate that emotional distress. So when kids get emotionally dysregulated, it's a nervous system thing that's happening. And some of them are really good at dialing it back and bringing it back in, responding to the tools that adults give them to calm themselves down. And some of them are not good at it. And it takes more tools and it takes more time and it takes more, more practice with them. But yeah, the whole, the whole goal that we have for our children is to learn to grow up and be self-regulated, balanced adults. And yet we don't help them learn how to self-regulate. We regulate them from the outside in. And so they don't learn how to do that from the inside out. And just to be clear, you're not saying, um, you know, let the, let them cry and not tend to them. You're saying, let's work on this together. Yep. Feel what that you means- have to feel, you know, because there are so many, you know, people on uh, both sides of this, right? Do I let them cry? Do I not let them cry? It's a big thing like people talk about. And this is just the crying part. We haven't even gotten to the anger or anything I else. I know. I I, it's very tricky. It's uh-huh. very tricky to to draw really clear lines around this because everything depends so much about the interaction. And so, you know, if your idea of letting the child cry, it means that the child isn't getting the comfort that they need from you. And they're just like sitting there crying. And the trust. That they're right. You're not, it's not going to work the same way. And so we have to, we, we have to have the boundaries of knowing that we're okay. Mm. We have feelings about what's happening too. Okay, so when your baby is crying, when your toddler is crying, when your three-year-old is crying, you're having feelings about that. (laughs) And you have to hold on to your feelings and regulate your feelings while you help them calm themselves down. The idea isn't just to let them cry, but to help them calm themselves. So let me hold you first and make a container around you. And then let's breathe together. I'm going to breathe really long and slowly. I'm going to regulate my emotions and slow my breath down. And that helps them learn how to do the same Absolutely. thing. And, you know, as an adult, I know when I'm hurting, that's what I want too. Sure. Sure. You know, and you don't and realize. So yeah. And so we have that as an adult, we get to adulthood and we can't regulate ourselves. Mm. Right. I mean, maybe you have to learn how to regulate yourself as an adult. I did. I didn't know how to calm myself down. Yeah. Me neither. And it's, I think it would be so much easier if we had the tools to do this with our children or with any children than doing it. It's harder as an adult. It's harder and it's lonelier and it's tougher and it takes longer and all the, all the things, right? And so if as an adult, I don't have the success strategy of independence, which is what I call the one for toddlers, good word for toddler, eh? Yes. <laughs> if you know a toddler, you know, independence is their life motto. 
Um, and so when we get to be adults and we don't have the boundaries of independence, then what we're like is we're defensive. So when somebody else asks us a question that sounds like it might be a criticism, we're reactive to that and we're defensive because we don't know who we are really. We're not sure if that's true about us because that's somebody else's opinion. It goes right in if we don't have the boundary to hold it out. We just believe it. Um, the emotions that other people have, we're never sure how we feel because we're always waiting to see how other people feel about something. We don't know what we want. You know, the conversation at, in a workplace where the women are trying to decide where to go out to lunch and nobody will say where they want to go. <laughs> oh, I don't care wherever you want to go. Oh, wherever, wherever you want to go. And it can go on for 30 minutes until someone is finally willing to say, I want to eat. And lunch here. is over. And then, oh, it's too late. Yeah, right. If we won't say what we want, we are never going to get it. If we won't say how we feel, we're not ever going to get sympathy for it. And if we won't say what we think, we're never going to know what other people think about what we think. We're and never going to have a conversation. Be, yes. And we might be surprised. Maybe what we right. think we're going to think is completely different and we wasted all this time. But when yeah. you said that, it like, this light bulb went off because I know a lot of men like this where they take things kind of personal mm -hmm. and um, perhaps didn't have that nurturing, you know, and now when, once you said that I could name like three or four men that I know in my personal circle. And now that I know that I'm going to look at it differently because I think sometimes I'm harsh on these people in my life for that reason, because yeah. I don't understand it. Yeah, I say that, you know, we, we toss the word boundaries around in psychological parlance like we know what it means. And usually when people say that they're talking about their boundaries, they're talking about telling people no. They're talking about setting limits is what they're talking about. A boundary is an edge. It's your skin. This is my physical boundary right here. The edge of my body is my physical boundary. I need a skin on my mind around my thoughts and my opinions and my beliefs so that they're mine. I need a skin on my emotions so they're mine and they're held inside me and they're not leaking out all everybody else and I'm not letting in everybody else's feelings instead of having my own, you know, so it's really about an edge and that's a very difficult concept for people who don't have one to understand. Very hard, but it's a biggie. This is a big one. Infancy and toddlerhood and three because that faith strategy at three if we don't have that when we grow up, we are passionless for life. We're the people who say, well, life's another sandwich. Can you take another bite? Oh, we tried that yesterday and it won't work. Every day, another dime, another, you know, it's like the people who are passionless about life and have no interest in anything beyond what is right in front of them. That's a lack of faith. And that's a three-year-old without the support that they need. I'm just like, as you're talking, like I'm putting this, I have a relationship in my mind, a personal one that I, I'm relating to, right? So yeah, I'm guilty of sometimes um, being angry with people that don't have passion, but it's not their fault. But then I'm right. sometimes frustrated with them because um, I'm like, okay, that was then, this is now, let's, you know, let's work on that. And, and sometimes they put up a wall because they don't see it. They don't know anything different. So I think it will help yeah. me. What you just said will help me personally in being a little bit more patient and understanding where it's coming from. It's not hard headedness. It's something that's been learned. So thank you for that. Cause I think, you know, on my daily life and I think I will, will remember that for sure. 
And the healthier your boundaries are, the more you know it's not about you, that their behavior is not about you, that it's about them, mm. then you can be more compassionate about wherever it comes from. Hmm. Yeah. So a boundary is like so, something stops and where it starts, right? So just sort of like a line. Yes. And we violate kids' boundaries. I've been real aware of this this week. I'm hanging out with a couple of littles. And I've been real aware of how we violate kids' boundaries a lot. Like we just take stuff right out of their hands without asking them. This is where boys learn not to ask for consent when they're toddlers. Because we take stuff away from them. And so then they turn around and take stuff away from other people. Mm. We just grab, we pick them up, we grab them and move them out of what they're doing to go do something else without telling them we're going to do it. We're constantly violating their body integrity without any warning. And then we do it with their thoughts and their feelings in there. I can so see that. Can you see it? And you're, yeah. and you're teaching them to kind of watch their back because you don't know who's going to come up behind you and just, yes. you don't expect it. There's no warning. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't like that if somebody was like, hey, hey, you know, like, yeah, it's interesting. Because I think- So, so I talk about, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think deep inside, we kind of know this, but we don't really dissect it and learn about it. And you know what I mean? Like, I just, I think we know it on the surface and kind of like put it to the side. And I think the, the barrier to going deeper often is if I'm going to really do something different with children, I'm going to need to do something different with myself first. Mm. I'm going to need to put my own oxygen mask on before assisting others on the airplane. You know, you don't put your child's oxygen mask on them before you put your own on when there's a crash. You put your own on first. I because didn't understand we, that for years. Because we cannot help them. Yeah. If, and we can't help them breathe if we can't breathe. And so this core that I've been talking about the first three years of the strategy of trust, the strategy of independence, and the strategy of faith, that's the heart of who all of us is. That is what I need. I know what I need, and I know how to get it. I know what I want, and I know how to get it. I know how I feel, and I know how to tell other people about it. I know what I think, and I know how to talk about it. And I know what my passion for life is. I know what my big dreams are. And I have my enthusiasm in my back pocket. And I'm, I'm loving that people love me as I am. Like, here's the heart of me right here, these three things. And then starting at four, we like go out into the world and start practicing, start figuring out how to make it work in relationships. Mm. Now I know all this stuff about myself. There's all those other people out there. They've got all that stuff about them too. How do we get along with each other? And so at four, you learn how to negotiate. Um, four-year-olds are all about the rules and finding the negotiate, finding how to get the thing they want that's a little bit different from what you'd like to offer. Right. So do you want a peanut butter sandwich for lunch or tomato soup? Well, what I really want is something in the middle somewhere that's not either of those things. And four-year-olds are all about trying to see what our container is for the choice. Mm -hmm. So if you've offered a, a peanut butter sandwich or a bowl of tomato soup for lunch, that, those both exist for you inside a container of reality that includes things like it has to be in the house I'm not driving to the store before I fix lunch it has to be nutritious whatever I think that means it has to fit in with what I know is the plan for the other meals of the day what the kid ate for breakfast what's coming for dinner how much time I have to prepare it you've got this container of of like boundaries they're like rules they're the the edges of, of they're your limits and your agreements with the world right now, what you will do. And so the kid's trying to figure out, 
I'm going to shoot an arrow into that mess there and hope I hit something that they'll say yes to. And what they do over time is they learn how to shoot the arrow more and more accurately, how to make their negotiation offer more likely something you'll say yes to. What a good skill. And they come out of the end of that year with the ability to get what they want without manipulating if we help them do it. I love that so much. Isn't that great? I love four-year-olds. They're one of my faves. Yes. And I miss that age, but you know, I'm going to take this opportunity to say that I think we should always give children a choice. So I always gave my child a choice and I was always, always um, told not to by the people around me. Perfect. Uh, No, it's perfect to give children choices. You're giving them too much of a choice. They're three, they're four. You tell them what they're going to have. And I was so against that. You know, and and yes, Good. that's what my son did. He would pick a third thing. But then I would say, why? And do you know, more times than not, he would have a better reason than for the choices I suggested. Mm-hmm. And he's 14 now, and he still does that. And I'm like, if you can present a reason why your, you know, how you came up with this and why this would be a better, you know, punishment or mm-hmm. better you know, bedtime or a better, whatever, they're trying to spread their yeah. wings. I said that I'm willing to listen to it, but it's got to, you know, you've got to back it up, right? So That's right. thank you for mentioning that because I don't think everybody does that. I don't think people give- No, they don't. And you know, you can really start it very young, even toddlers, you can trick toddlers because whatever the second thing you say, the last thing you say, that's what they'll pick. So you can stack the deck <laughs> and tell them the thing you want them to pick, just say it last and that's the one they'll pick because it's the last thing they can remember. But by the time they get to three, they want to make choices that are simple choices about their lives. Do you want to sit in this chair or that chair? Do you want to wear this shirt today or that shirt today? Do you want milk or water? Do you, you know, simple things. And the trick for grownups is never offer more than two choices until the kid's like three or four. And then make sure the choices you offer, you're okay with both of them. Yes. I've the done that. Most, the error most parents make is they ask the child what they want. What do you want for lunch? That's the stupidest question to ask a young child I can even imagine. Because the answer could be an entire chocolate cake, and you just opened the door for that. Right? Yes. But if you say this or this, then they have to pick one until they get old enough at about four to start thinking of the alternatives in the middle. And then they learn to negotiate. And if they don't then when they grow up they are people who manipulate in the workplace they they ask you a question to set you up to say yes before they ask you for what they want Mm -hmm. they guilt trip you about giving them what they want they when you give them the critical feedback at work they fall into tears and dissolve into basically a tantrum so if we don't get this when we're four, we carry it into our adulthood, into all of our relationships. Boom. Like, this is like, wow, this is incredible. And so I don't want to take, I don't want to take all this, this much time with every single oh, one of them. because We still have three more to go, but, <laughs> but vision, compromise and acceptance sort of go together. Mm-hmm. Um, vision is the ability to set a goal and make a plan to get there, which is very five-ish. Five-year-olds love to figure things out, figure out how things work, take things apart. And they like to take apart interaction and take apart um, planning. And so you'll see groups of five-year-olds stand around and plan how to play. 
So next, you're going to come in and you're going to pretend to be this character and you're going to do that. And then we're going to get on the spaceship and they'll stand there and talk for 30 minutes to plan what they're going to play sometimes. It's amazing to watch them. Um, but what they're doing, what they're learning how to do is create a plan to get to an end point. And they, often they don't care if they execute it. It's the goaling and the planning that they like. And I would watch my kids I, when I was a, a young preschool teacher and director in the 80s and the Star Wars movie came out, the first ones, my preschool kids played Star Wars every day on the playground, my five-year-olds, every exactly. single day. <laughs> but, you know, all they did was stand there and talk about who's going to be the Ewok and who's going to be Darth Vader and who's going to be Han Solo and what's going to happen and when are we going to go to the fourth moon of Endor? And they would spend 30 minutes of outdoor playtime planning how to play Star Wars and never play it. Oh. And then they come back the next day and do it again. And I thank you for explaining that because again, like it makes so much sense. But I am guilty of this too. That I, you know, if I if I see that, I don't go there. Like where you're explaining it, I'm like, oh, that's the bossy one. Uh -huh. Yeah. But I have, you know, I've been guilty of thinking that that's going to be the one that's going to take over the. But it's not now. I see the what they're actually doing. That's thank the young you. leader. Yeah. So the, the kid who aces negotiation is Henry Kissinger. He's the he's the diplomat who solves our wars, right? The kid who aces vision at five is the strategic planning advisor at your corporation, <laughs> right? Wow. They they each have a skill, a success strategy that they are learning or they're not. Hmm. And the last two are compromise and acceptance, which are essential to get along in a big group of people. So you can get along with one other person with a little bit of negotiation and sidestepping and working it out. But when you're in a room, that's why they happen when you go to school, six years old, when you go to kindergarten for compromise, acceptance at seven when you're in second grade, you know, first or second grade. So you have to begin to make a world that works for everyone, not just for you. That's the shift. Hmm. And so at six and seven, what you learn is the ability to be in community and have it be a welcoming community, or you don't. And so at six, you learn how to give up some of what you want, basically. And the way I do, the way I talk about it is at four, you want this and the other four-year-old wants this. Mm -hmm. And all you have to do is negotiate a win-win for two things. You both get what you want. <laughs> I love that. When you go, when you're, when you're at compromise, you both want five things. And you're not going to get all 10 negotiated out. That's not going to work. So each of you has to say, okay, I'm going to give up these two and I'm going to give up these two in order to make it work. So when you're in a classroom, a kindergarten classroom of 30 kids, compromise is the way to go. You can't negotiate your way out of a group that big. And then acceptance. You have to find out when you get a little bit older that even if you do everything right, even if you treat everybody well, you follow all the rules, you're a good kiddo, bad things can happen to you. People can be mean. People can bully you. People, people you love who you think are marvelous, wonderful, good people can get sick and die. Mm. Life isn't as orderly as you thought, kid. And cause and effect is not tidy. Just because you're good doesn't mean only good things happen to you. And just because you're bad doesn't mean you get your comeuppance or your consequences that you should get. So we have to face a world that is basically illogical and nonsensical just after we started being logical. Confusing, confusing times. And so then we get to grown up hood without all of those. And we literally cannot get along without causing disruption and emotional chaos around us. If you come through that seven years with basically none of that, 
you are who I was at 21. I grew up in a family with sexual abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, divorce, a parent with a mental illness, alcoholism. It's like we had so many adverse childhood experiences stacked on our heads, my siblings and I, that when I got to adulthood, I literally had no idea how to be a person at all. Mm. And I struggled with that for another 10 years before I finally went to therapy and did something about it when I was 30. And that act of my own recovery uh, with the study of developmental psychology created this mm. structure of the seven success strategies. This is beautiful. I'm so, oh, I'm, so glad. I'm so glad you feel that way about it because I do too. Honestly, no, it's... It's not only interesting, but it's going to change things. The more as adults, we understand these, um, these things that you're talking about, the more that we understand and put them into action and take a step back from what we, how we would normally react to children. Oh my God, this, like to me, I see this hope for the future of people like me at 33 and you at 30, not having to do as much work. Yes, you know, that would be nice. It's a beautiful thing, honestly. Yeah. 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 And, th and that's why the second book that I wrote uh, is called Let the Child Shine, Teaching oh, to the Brilliance in a Young Child. And it's for teachers mostly. And I'd like to write something similar for parents, but it's, it's that let's not make them have to have development do-overs. Let's yes. do it right the first time. Let's do it as well as we can. We can't be perfect. We're humans too. Mm -hmm. But the way we get better at it is we get self-aware about how we use these strategies ourselves or how we don't, and we start using them more effectively. Yes. You can learn how to trust people now as a grown-up. I did. I didn't know how to trust anybody when There's I was hope for 20. all of us. There's hope, Carol, there for all of us. There is. And you know, yeah, I consider myself a single data point of success. If I can get uncrazy, anybody <laughs> can. I love that. And I truly believe it takes more than a parent or a teacher. It does take a village. You know, everybody's got different experiences. Everybody can learn, you know, one of the strategies. And because, you know, I think I might be better at one than maybe somebody else, you know, but together, if we learn them, you know, everybody yeah. can specialize in one particular thing. Oh my God, right. the world would be a completely different place. We don't always have to put all this pressure on ourselves to learn all the things either. We have extended families or friends or books, you know, and uh, I think yeah. that's phenomenal. And the, I think that the village metaphor is good too for the awareness that I give always credit to the resilience factors in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, I don't know if you're familiar with this list of um, adverse childhood experiences that I'm loosely referring to, but it's a researched list of 10 things that can happen to little kids that are basically so damaging that it doesn't just mess with your psychological health and your emotional health, but it actually affects your physical body's health. And so people who have multiple ACEs, they're called for short, adverse childhood experiences. If you have multiple ACEs when you're young, then very likely you're going to have heart disease, diabetes, uh, immunocompromised system, something that is chronic, debilitating, and progressive is going to come about that much more likely in a child, in an adult who had a lot of ACEs as a child. And the thing that offsets that is the resilience factors, neighbors, teachers, camp counselors, other people outside your family 
who give you a different experience of what it's like. And I was blessed with a lot of those, or I probably wouldn't even be here right now. I probably, by the time I was 30, would have been dead in prison, in a mental hospital, pretty ruined if I hadn't had the offset balance. And we had a lot of resilience factors. We were lucky, my siblings and I. We weren't so lucky with the family that we had, but we were pretty lucky with the neighborhood, the village. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I've I've interviewed um, almost 100 people now in the last year and uh, the people who are brave enough to come on and, and tell their stories and sometimes for the first time, every single one of them has come through the other side with the help of a stranger that has impacted them more than someone in their circle. Because you tend to think alike the people in your circle. You know, you do need, and thank God for those people. Yes. You know, thank yeah. goodness. You know, there is, there's one lady and I don't even know her name, but I call her my father's angel because through all the suffering my father went through with cancer before he died, she was the nameless person that gave him the will to live and to fight. And I don't remember her name. I don't, I remember she had an Irish accent and she was a nurse. And, you know, uh -huh. I wish I could have taken her details down because man, the things I would say to her. And sometimes right. it just takes somebody just to notice, you know, walk toward people, stop walking around people, open our eyes. And I have a practice that I use when I'm uh, out in public and I see children who are being maltreated by adults. Mm usually their parents. Um, and what I try to do is I don't try to intervene with the adult because I consider that to be a, a, a risky thing to do for me. Right. Um, and I don't think that it helps the child. It creates drama that they don't need to see. Mm. And so what I do is I try to catch the child's eye. I wait for eye contact. I just stand there holding my presence and focusing on the child until the child looks at me. And mm. then I smile and I say, you're okay. Or I wink and I say, you're going to be fine. Oh Just something God. to let them know somebody else sees you. And this isn't all there is what's happening to you right now. This isn't all there is. There's something else. And I don't know if it helps or not, but it's something that I do consistently. And it feels like it makes a difference in the world. You got me with that. Like, honestly, do you know how many times I would have loved for somebody to do that with me? Right. Me too. Me too. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And, but what we did have was there was a family down the street that had several children that were, they kind of mat, well, they had two kids that matched the upper age and the lower age limit of my family group. Mm. And so we all hung out there a lot. All five of us went down there and they were that family in the neighborhood that welcomed kids like that. Mm -hmm. And they treated their children and us completely differently than I got treated at home. I was like, Wow. And I had some teachers that were like that. And my mother's father had money and sent us to summer camp. And so I had some camp counselors who were like that. So every time I met another adult or a teenager or somebody outside my family that just looked at me and saw me and gave me some respect as a human being in a different way than I got at home, it just made a difference. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody gets me. Maybe these people don't. Right. But <laughs> But it's okay, you know, and I want to be that person that people can come to and, and do that. And my son's like, no, mom, you can't just be friend, best friends with my friends. Like, that's so not cool. You know, so it's like, you can't win. But anyway, <laughs> he's like, no, you're trying too hard. Like, it, they think, <laughs> like, your friends think you're I'm cool, but you might not. And he's like, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. 
I, we, we could talk forever, but you know, we, I, I've got to invite you back on because honestly, I really I mean, enjoyed our- to talk to you again. That's wonderful. We have so much more. Like, I don't feel this conversation is over. There's so much more to uncover. Yeah. You know, there's so much more I want to ask you, but- and you know, One of the things I just want to make sure and say before we wrap up is that um, if you're a parent right now of a young child, don't freak out too much about this. <laughs> Okay. okay. <laughs> a lot of times what happens is people hear this message and, and their child is already six and they're like, oh my God, I've completely screwed it up now. Uh, I've, I've ruined my child. Oh, or, no. or my child is two and you're telling me, I don't have any idea how to do this differently, but clearly I need to. I'm freaking out, right? So don't freak out because you have to be, you have to be so forgiving of yourself. Parenting is so hard and, and kids are unique individuals. Each one would have to have its own personally written ownership manual for you to really know what you're doing. And they don't even come with a general, <laughs> a general instruction but manual. But just the fact all. that they're asking, just the fact that they're questioning, that's so much more than what we had when we grew up. Just that is amazing. Yeah. So just know that if you're well-intentioned and you're willing to look at yourself. So the point is, don't freak out about your parenting. Look at yourself. Become more self-aware of who you are. Stay out of your kid's way because your kid is going to be okay with a lot of this on their own unless somebody messes with them. So a lot of being a good parent is watching what's happening and supporting it instead of trying to get in front of it and help it and pull it along. Just let the kid be. They're competent. They're born competent. Let them evolve in competency and watch them do it and support them. And don't freak out. Do you find that when we do do the things that you're suggesting and not be on top of them all the time, that when we do need them to come to us, they'll come more openly? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because what happens when we sort of over helicopter the, the kids, when we hang around them and help them with every little thing that they're doing before they have a chance to be successful and competent on their own, is we essentially tell them, I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in you. And I don't think you're competent to live without me. Mm. And unfortunately, we raise a lot of kids who get real dependent for way too long then. And I think that children really could be a lot more independent than they are. We, we rush in too soon over and over again. And if people are interested in learning more about that, there's actually an approach to parenting called RIE, R-I-E, parenting, Mm -hmm. uh, based on resources in infant educaring, which is an approach to teaching infants in groups uh, like Head Start classrooms or childcare classrooms. Um, but Rye is a, an approach that respects the competence of the child mm -hmm. and tells the grown up, wait, just back off and wait. You know, if a kid is reaching for something and they can't quite reach it, you don't have to step in and give it to them. They can have the experience of frustration, they can have the experience of struggle. And it will be good for them. Let them try. If they look at you and say, eh, eh, that's your cue that they're saying, help me. But don't help them until they give up on their own. They, because kids will try and be purposeful and push to get something that they want for a long, long time without our help if we don't step in too soon. So I'm leave them alone. Watch guilty. them. I'm glad you said yeah. don't feel guilty because I can see all those days coming back to me, you know? <laughs> right. I oh, me too. <laughs> me too. I learned all this late too. I can't wait. Well, it's okay. When grandbabies come, I'll be good. But, you <laughs> know, but I would love to see you write 
a book on how this connects with teenagers. Because honestly, mm -hmm. I think a lot of us could use that. Um, just to see, you know, I see the connection between complete adult and child, but I would just love to, you know, how do you get your kids to open up more when you maybe not show them how to do it? You know, so I would love to like learn from you about that. <laughs> All right, I put that one in my back pocket. <laughs> the next book. I'm so honored that you came and took the time out of your day today to come and talk to us. I know I personally have learned a lot from you and have connected the dots that I've been missing for a long time. So thank you on a personal level. And I'm sure you've helped the audience so much. So where can we connect with you? Where can we find you? Um, best place uh, usually is just to go to my website to see what's new, lcarolscott.com. I also have a Facebook uh, fan page, I guess you call it, a, a um, profile of myself as Dr. L. Carol Scott, which is I'm separate a fan. My... I'm a fan. Okay, good. Good, good. Yeah, so everything will happen from there for a while, I think. That's wonderful. Thank you. And yeah, keep sharing your message. These messages are so important. Keep educating us. And I love that you don't make us feel guilty. I good. love that. It, it's just from, it's from a, comes from a good place. So that's so important. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe or leave a review. See you next week on the Giving Starts With You podcast.